Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. Matthew Dickerson. Tech Talk. Sit back and relax. It's time to talk technology. Tech boffins of the world assemble and gather around the radio for some cracking story time. Yes, people, it's that time of week again. Pull your chair in nice and close to the wireless and listen up carefully to our tech talking tutor, Matthew Dickerson. How are you, Matt? Did you like the ironic retro feel that I gave to that intro? I did like the wireless part. <laughs> it's very subtle. I haven't heard the term wireless for some time, James. That's good. Well, not in that, re- no, not in re- reference to that, at least. It may be that Wi-Fi. Not in reference to the radio. <laughs> no, no, that's right. <laughs> so it is interesting you go retro there with the intro this week, because one of the questions I've been asked a lot over the last couple of weeks, actually, the new iPhone was announced and launched and it's been out in the market for a week or so now. And some people have been saying to me they're a bit underwhelmed by the new features in the latest iPhone. Yeah, right. And so then the question starts to become, have we reached peak smartphone? Are we at the point where there's no new, exciting, revolutionary, blow-your-minds-away features that are going to come in the smartphone? And of course, I can't answer that. I would suggest no, because just when we think in human development we've reached a certain peak, then it seems to keep going in leaps and bounds ahead. But it was a bit underwhelming the latest iPhone because there wasn't anything that we went, wow, look at that. That's just unbelievable. Now, Samsung have still got their folding phones. They've got a fold and a flip phone. So that's pretty incredible to have a screen that folds up. And they're quite nice to use. You take this nice little compact phone and fold it out and wow, look at how big it is. Don't get me wrong, the iPhone seemed to still have some nice new features. The camera was better. The screen was better. But there wasn't one feature that people went, wow, I've got to have that phone because it's got that new blah. It was just nothing like that. So they're going to have to like throw out the whole team, the marketing team, the design team. Everyone's going to have to get get rid of them all and get in a whole brand new team with brand new ideas coming from left field. Get an iPhone designed by Homer Simpson, maybe. <laughs> That's right, like the car he designed. <laughs> <laughs> but it is a good point because I reckon the biggest challenge is not so much on delivering the technology, but for someone to come up with the idea. Mm. Exactly as you say, you sit around in a room and go, what about this? Well, it's building on what's already there. You almost do need a five-year-old and say to them, what do you want in a smartphone? And they say, oh, why doesn't it do this? And everyone goes, oh, wow, that's a great idea. We never thought of that. So it's almost at that point where you do need the Homer Simpson to come along. What's Matt Groening doing at the moment? Matt, you got some ideas for a new smartphone? <laughs> well, I was thinking, like, um, watching the old Star Trek movies and Captain James Kirk, William Shatner there with his thing that he talks into. I can't even, I'm not a tr- enough of a Trekkie. Communicator, I think they call them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They have one of those. You know, what can we do with that? You know, all, all that sort of invention that was done by Hollywood so many years ago, we've actually turned that into something that is, well, we've got better than that now. Yeah. Hey, we need an iPhone to teleport someone. That's what we need. Okay. We'll get the design team working on that. So Teleportation. Remember a second ago when I said, I don't think it's so much the technology, it's the idea. Well, maybe in that one, it is the technology. (laughs) (laughs) Give it time. Give it time. (laughs) Well, kids, as per usual, prepare to have your minds blown away today. We're going to look into um, a clever solution for cattle farmers. We're going to have a look at wireless charging furniture and guns that shoot around corners. And not like on the cartoons either, folks. But let's start by, well, hopefully alleviating some stress about passwords. Now, I've got to confess, folks, I'm over passwords. Every single thing we do online needs a password, and apparently it's a bad idea to double up. Passwords for emails, banking, music, video, professional websites, security software, shopping, etc., etc., etc. It does my head in, and then you have to periodically update them. But you can't reuse old ones either, Matt. Talk to me. 
Give me some good news about passwords. Well, wouldn't it be easier, James, if we just threw away the idea of passwords altogether? Ah, yes. (laughs) And if we trusted everyone and everyone was as trustworthy as you and I, that'd be good. As simple as that. Yeah, that's right. Problem solved. (laughs) But unfortunately, there's some people with ethics just slightly below ours, James. It's hard to believe, I know. (sighs) But I actually did a quick count when I was working through the research for this story, and I went, I know lots of passwords are saved in my browser. I'll just go and have a quick count. And I expected there to be a fair few sites and places that I visited that I needed passwords for. I counted 180 different passwords saved. Oh, well, that you know what? That surprised me, but it doesn't really surprise me, Matt. Oh, it's incredible, isn't it? So, 180. And exactly as you said, you've got to change them and they've got to have certain minimum characteristics and all the rest of it. And so what you find is lots of places around the world, when they do some research into passwords, they still find that we use 123456 or QWERTY or my favourite is Password, the password of password. <laughs> What's your st- stop there? Stop there. You got to give people. You can hear that sound. That's the sound of people changing their passwords right now. <laughs> oh no, he's guessed my password. That's right. How did he know that? He he read my mind. <laughs> but I always like the password when you say to someone, "What's your password?" and they say, "Password." Yeah, I know. But what's your password? It's just that never-ending loop that you get stuck in there sometimes. <laughs> but finally, my password is password. So that's the challenge. Now Microsoft have said we understand all that. We're going to throw away passwords altogether. I'm up for and it. And of course, you immediately think that Bill Gates has been injecting all his employees with 5G vaccines and, and that's it. They've all gone <laughs> yeah, crazy. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> but they actually have this point now. And this is something you can do right now. This isn't a plan from Microsoft. This is something you can do right now where you can actually use an authenticator app. And when you log into Outlook or OneDrive or even logging onto your computer, you don't type in a password. You just simply type in your username and then say, create a password. It sends a password or a one-time password to your authenticator app, and then you type it in. Now, this isn't like two-factor authentication that many people will be familiar with, especially with banking, for example. It's not something where you type in a password, then you get sent a text or some sort of authentication as a secondary factor. This is, forget the first step. This is just the authentication factor as the only step. So you can use an authenticator app, you can use a text message, you can use a secondary email address, but ultimately what you do is when you log in, you don't have to remember anything, you wait for that information to be sent to you from Microsoft, and then you log in and just go about your day as you normally would. So forget about remembering anything, you just have to make sure you've got access. The first problem that I thought of with that whole scenario, it does scare people a bit. I've talked to a few people about this over the last week. It does scare people a little bit. But the first problem I thought of was it's relying on a ubiquitous connection. So when we're up on an aeroplane, sure, there are times when we might have connection, the times we may not have. Mm. So you go to log in to Windows and do a bit of work on the plane and then go, oh, no, what do I do now? And, and there's no fail-safe. If you had a fail-safe, then hackers could use that same password to get in as a fail-safe. So there is no fail-safe. This is designed to have no password at all. So that's one problem I thought of. The other problem I thought of is I've got some clients in regional areas, and they used to talk about this funny scenario before Wi-Fi texting became available. They'd be on a satellite connection for their internet, and they'd be doing some banking. And they'd be working away, and then they'd need to log in to their bank, and their bank, of course, would send them a text message well, their phone didn't have mobile reception where they were. So they'd run up the driveway in their nighty or whatever they might have been working on late at night to find the one spot on their driveway that their mobile phone worked, get their text message, and then run back down to the house Mm. before the time for that one-time password or one-time text code would then expire (laughs) and quickly type that in. When you have places like that where you don't have that ubiquitous connection, 
the whole idea for Microsoft works great in the laboratory when you've always got a perfect connection, mm. or maybe works great in Seattle when you've probably got better reception than you have in regional Australia. Yeah. But that's the problem that I see is you're relying on this, which is a bit scary to start with, but then you're relying on always having a connection. I still like the idea, and I can I, I hear what you're saying. I just wish they'd find some way of tech recognising me like my pet dog does. So uh, here's my voice, sees who I am, maybe can smell me. That's what I need. Tech that can smell my BO <laughs> from a mile away. Go, ah, that's James, yes. That's it. Oh, <laughs> yes, that's him. <laughs> Come on <Yeah>. in, James. <laughs> Well, it does have the ability to do almost that as well. It can use iris, it can use face ID, it can use fingerprint. Yeah, but I I get frustrated. Whenever I try to use my fingerprint to sign in, it never recognises my fingerprint. (laughs) One person did express some concern about that idea to me because they said, what about if you die, how can people then get into your stuff after you die. Yeah. I'm not sure if turning up to the funeral home and just I wanted to inspect the body and just grab the hand and put it on the computer to get back into the computer <laughs> is, is going to be accepted by funeral directors around the world. But <laughs> in theory, it all sounds like it's a good way to get people to use better part or not have a password at all. I think there's a few hairs on it mm. as such. Maybe they'll iron some of those out when people start using it. But if you want to do it now, you can actually change your security settings for all your Microsoft accounts and you can start using it right away. Oh, wow. Well, yeah, I wonder what the take-up for that is going to be like. People will vote with their feet, I guess. They'll either be part of it or they won't. I feel like this next story is specifically for the people who feel like everything is a bit too much of an effort. In particular, if you're tired of plugging in your phone to your charger. Now, IKEA has come up with a simple solution to just build wireless charging stations into their furniture. Matt, ingenious. Why hasn't this happened before, James? <laughs> what a hassle. Plugging in phones and devices. Oh, that's so yesterday, isn't it? I'm just thinking about, you know, some really handy sort of people out there who've already thought of this and have already screwed in their, their own wireless chargers, their little pads that they've got into their furniture somewhere anyway. <laughs> well, it does happen. People have actually done that. One of the issues is, well, two issues here. There is furniture you can buy now. You can go and buy a desk that's got wireless charging built in. You can buy shelving, book shelving that's got wireless charging built in. But that means you've got to go and replace your desk or replace some of your furniture. And you might be happy with what you've got. Mm. So then some people, exactly as you said, I've seen some people who have gone and bought a wireless charger and they're designed to work with the phone very close to the actual charging pad. So they've had to route out a hole underneath their desk with maybe just that thin layer of Lemonex left on the top, (laughs) mount it in there underneath there, make sure it's okay, and then put a little spot on the desk where you do not lean. Because if you do lean there, you might go straight through the desk. So just be aware of that. This one, though, they've designed this charger that's specifically designed to put the charging sweet spot anywhere between 8 and 23 millimetres above the charging pad. Oh, that's quite a bit. Mm. Well, it is. So it's quite clever in the technology. So obviously all those charging pads that have been built up until now have been designed to work straight on it. This one actually directs the power to be that distance above there. And again, assuming your desk is maybe anywhere between, say, 8 and 23 millimetres, which seems reasonable. Most desks might be around that 20 millimetres, I would guess. So you put the charging pad underneath. It's got some double-sided tape. You stick it underneath there, plug it in underneath the desk, and then maybe put something on your desk that will really annoy other people in your house, a little pen mark, a text mark, an X on the spot or whatever. That's the spot. You sit your phone, 
to charge up automatically. I just think it seems like you're doing some magic. You say to some kids around the neighbourhood, hey, come and look at my charging desk. I can magically make it charge. And you say a few spells over the top of it and put your phone on the spot and it lights up and starts charging. I just think the kids around the neighbourhood would go, wow, James's house, it's really scary. It's ghosts over there. <laughs> he must have been injecting vaccinations all over the place. And, uh, That's right. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Maybe you could pretend you've got an invisible charging cable. Yeah. So again, get the kids around the neighbourhood and plug in something as you sit it down and it starts charging and the kids' eyes would light up and they'd go home and ask mum and dad how they can get an invisible charging lead. James has got one. Why can't we have one as well? So I think you're right, though. It is about extreme laziness. It's about <laughs> extreme, extreme levels of I don't want to be bothered plugging that thing in. How can I make life easier for myself? I do think, though, that um, we have this mess of cables. They've got a life in them as well. So they, after a while, they're no good. And so we just ends up, end up with this box full of old charging cables that don't work, old chargers that don't work. Hey, I'm up for it. If it if it declutters, I think it's probably a good idea. I reckon you could probably have three or four of them underneath your desk so you get to the stage where you just sit it anywhere because it's a bit of a hassle to find the right spot to sit it. So why not cover the underside of your desk with these and then you can just sit your phone anywhere. All right, I'm sold. Put five of them <laughs> on my account and I'll pick them up uh, in a week's time. Good news for EV shoppers. Hyundai has dropped their latest model onto the Aussie marketplace. Matt, what's the news here? Hyundai are going quite well, I think, in the EV space. They're one of the few companies that cares about Australia, so it's a good thing to start with. Thank you, Hyundai. (laughs) (laughs) And they've had their Ionic and their Kona out for a little while now, and their sales have been going okay. And in the Australian market, selling one is usually okay because there's not many sold in Australia. But what they've done with the new Ionic 5 is they've started from scratch and they've said, we need to build this car from the ground up. Some manufacturers take an existing petrol model and they say, well, it's simple, isn't it? You take out the petrol engine and you put in an electric motor and plug it into the transmission and away we go. I mean, I think they do a little bit more than that. Yeah. But but yeah, that's the basic premise. Yeah, yeah, that you, they're modifying a normal petrol driven yeah, car. Yeah, they're not redesigning from the ground up. Whereas the Ionic 5, and again, manufacturers are doing this now, they've basically designed this from the ground up. It's an SUV, and again, I think that's smart from EV manufacturers. SUVs are so popular around the world. So this is an SUV. Got reasonable range, 451 kilometres for the single motor version, 430 for the dual motor version. So that's all good. Good fast charging on it. Zero to 100, I know it shouldn't matter that much. Before EVs, we didn't really talk about zero to 100 times unless you're buying a Ferrari, mm. but zero to 100 in five seconds or 5.2 to be accurate. So it's all good specs on That's it. pretty neat. Yeah, and the price is actually just a little bit dearer than I would have hoped for. One of the reasons it's a bit dearer than I would have liked is it's just above the price that you get some subsidies from a couple of governments in Australia, a couple of state governments. So 71 and a half grand, those subsidies fall off at $68,750. So both New South Wales and Victoria have got a $3,000 subsidy for EVs below that mark. So you thought someone in marketing might have been able to say, just can we squeeze it down a little bit? (laughs) Because if we can take a couple of thousand dollars off it, that takes $5,000 off it in real terms for the customer. So maybe they'll do that. Who knows? Maybe someone there will say, hey, we missed the mark here. Or maybe they'll lobby government to go a bit higher. But this is just the first one that's been designed from scratch. We assume that future models might be able to be done a little bit cheaper, a little bit more economically, and and perhaps that can be passed on to the consumer, yeah? You're absolutely spot on. This is what most of the manufacturers are doing now. VW, for example, are basically building a platform that, or they've got a couple of different versions of the platform, but lots of different vehicle shapes will drop onto that. Tesla's already done it. Their Model 3, for example, and their Model Y. The base of that, the chassis of those two cars are basically the same and they drop a different body over the top. And again, I'm oversimplifying it, but the concept is there. And you're right. 
Hyundai in this particular example have said, this is our new electric vehicle platform and we will build different bodies on top of that platform. So you're probably spot on. The price will come down as the volume starts to slowly go up. But again, I do get a bit excited, James. I know I talk about them a little bit and I do apologise. But uh, Don't apologise for anything there, Matt. <laughs> I do get a bit excited when I see new EVs coming to the market because it just increases the whole market, which increases all the sales. So the whole electric vehicle concept will take off. Broader selection uh, is a real bonus. Now, I can only assume that with a smaller engine or smaller requirements for that engine space that, that there's more cabin space. That means more legroom. So a bloke who's 192 centimetres can stretch out a bit, yeah? Well, this is absolutely one of the things you do see with EVs. Yes! <laughs> <laughs> you've seen the front, you've got frunks in them because there's no motor in the front. The boot, there's a lot more room in the boot because there's not a big petrol tank taking it up. All the batteries are on the floor. So you don't have a transmission tunnel going through the middle, for example, because they're not trying to get mm. any sort of power from the front, from the motor at the front to the rear wheels. So you do get more room in general. And that's one of the things with EVs. The external dimensions and the internal dimensions are much better in terms of if you took the same external dimensions, the internals would be larger or you can get the same internal dimensions with a smaller external car. So you're spot on. You don't have all this clunkiness that you have with a petrol car. Mm. And um, with driverless technology, soon we'll be able to play a game of table tennis um, on our long trips. <laughs> I'm interested that table tennis is your first choice there, James. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why it came to mind, but I thought, hey, what can you do in space with a bit of space around you? Getting high-speed internet across difficult geography can be a bit tricky, just to put it mildly, but as many listeners... You'll testify that that getting optic fibre cable sometimes cannot bridge big gaps. But if there's one thing that our species has gotten good at over 5 million years of evolution, we love to solve tricky problems. And Matt, there have been some pretty clever but unsuccessful attempts to solve this problem so so far. However, it looks like we might finally be there. Getting very close. And one of the things that I love about this particular project is there's a famous quote from Thomas Edison. Who knows if it's correct or not? Doesn't even matter. I'm sure lots of famous people famous people from the past have had all sorts of quotes attributed to them. But apparently he was working on some battery technology and he'd worked on about 10,000 different ways of developing that battery technology and they didn't work. And a reporter apparently said to him, Thomas, you've failed with this 10,000 times. And he said, no, no, no. I haven't failed 10,000 times. I've just found 10,000 ways that now I know will not work. (laughs) And I like the way he turned that negative into a positive. And and this is what's happened here. Project Loon, which we may well have spoken about parts of Project Loon in the past. Project Loon was an idea by Alphabet, which is Google's parent company, to give internet access to some areas of the world, some third world countries, some areas that were in really rough terrain, to give them some internet access. So they tried helium balloons, obviously very big helium balloons with some technology hanging off the bottom of them. They even tried some solar-powered drones and aeroplanes, and they worked on that. And one of the things they were working on with that was the ability to have these devices up in the air and getting that signal back down to Earth. In the end, they've given up. Project Loon is dead. So they folded that whole concept. I think it was early this year, it might have been January this year, that that whole concept folded. But one of the pieces of technology that they worked on out of that was giving fast internet access from the sky to the ground where you couldn't really run a bit of fibre optic cable. You might create a few issues dangling a 10 kilometre length of fibre optic cable from a helium balloon, for example, back down to earth. I can see some issues there with a whole bunch of stuff. So they worked on laser technology. And if it's laser, it's a bit like Bluetooth. If it's laser, it's got to be cool, right? That makes sense to me. Anytime you use lasers, they're just such a cool concept. But what they found with these lasers, they could actually use those to transmit data over 
reasonable distances, not hundreds of kilometres, but reasonable distances at speeds that were similar to fibre optic cable. So they gave up on Project Loon. They said, that's the end of that. But hold on, we've got this technology which we know works. So now they're working on using that same technology to get signals from place A to place B where it's quite difficult to get them either because the terrain isn't great or getting fibre optic cables is difficult or it might just be that they want really high speed and normal wireless transmission of those speeds is not going to cut it. So in this scenario, they found two places in the Congo which aren't that far apart. We're talking about less than five kilometres apart. But between town A and town B is a raging river. And you try and run a fibre optic cable underneath that river. It's not quite like the ocean where you can go down to the depths and run a fibre optic cable. Mm. And it's pretty still down the bottom of the ocean. You try and run that across a raging river. It's pretty difficult to get there or you have to dig so deep underneath the river that it makes it very expensive. What they've done, though, is they've put up two lasers, and those two lasers basically point generally in the right direction, but once they're there, they'll self-focus, so they'll basically make sure they find the other laser. It's only got to be within five degrees of the other laser for it to self-focus. Oh, wow. And once it self-focuses, then it can start transmitting at speeds so far in their initial testing of 20 gigabits per second, so not too bad. Oh, yeah, that's awesome. It is. So, so far, they've only had this going for about 20 days so far, but they've transmitted 700 terabytes of data at a consistency rate of 99.9%, so an error rate of 0.1%. So pretty impressive in terms of... Pretty good. Yeah, the, the data speeds, pretty impressive in terms of the setup costs of it because you're not trying to get a cable from A to B. You're not trying to set up ridiculous technology. You're just setting up a laser at each end. And the units themselves aren't that big. I reckon they'd be less than a metre high for the whole unit. So it's not that large a unit when you're transmitting a fair bit of data across a relatively short link. You're talking about 10 kilometres there. Um, I'm just thinking about how many different variables can occur in a 10-kilometre airspace. You've got humidity variations, you've got uh, temperature variations, you've got dust and and smoke particles potentially. There's all sorts of little things that that could uh, interfere with, um, with the light. But obviously in practice this is working. Well, it is, but you've hit a really important point. In their testing so far, if you do get things like fog, it doesn't really work. Ah, okay. So the idea of where you might use this might be in places like the Congo, where they probably don't get a lot of fog. If someone said, hey, what about San Francisco, <laughs> where in winter it's incredibly foggy? No, not so good. So that is one of the limitations. But I think in most of the areas that they're talking about using this, we are talking about areas of Africa that are typically a bit hotter, a bit less likely to have fog. And obviously you can get them at a point where the climate... Down close to the ground, for example, you might get some of those variations in, say, heat waves that might come off the ground. But you get it up high enough, and Mm. I imagine they're putting these on towers that are maybe 30, 50 metres above the ground. Then as long as you haven't got fog around, you're getting a reasonably clear shot from A to B. But you are spot on. It is light. So anything that would affect light is going to affect a laser, because a laser is obviously just a strong beam of focused light. So you are still getting those problems with any sort of things that will interfere with light. Well... I still think that human ingenuity is remarkable, and that is a cracking story. This podcast is sponsored by Podbean. Podbean is the easiest way to create your own podcast. We use Podbean to host Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. Download the free Podbean podcast app to start, record, and publish your very own podcast in minutes. Podbean provides everything you need to run your podcast and you can record and publish episodes directly from the app on your phone. Download the free Podbean app today. That's P-O-D-B-E-A-N. 
head on over to Podbean at www.podbean.com and use the code PODCAST21 for your first 30 days of podcast hosting for free. Check it out. The next piece that you've got to talk about came out of a Roadrunner cartoon, I'm sure. <laughs> Something maybe that Wiley Coyote might have had couriered to him by Acme. He prizes open the big wooden crate and next thing he's got a gun that can shoot around corners. <laughs> now, there's a high-tech gun site promising just that. Matt, this is going to tear apart the rules of backyard armies like we used to play when I was a kid. Rule number one was you can't shoot around corners, but this sucker's changed all that. Yeah, ricochets weren't allowed in those backyard games either, were they? No, 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 no. <laughs> so the only disappointment before I talk about this story is we're talking about things that are designed to hurt other people. Yeah. I prefer it was talked about with paintball, so I'll pretend it's paintball when I'm talking okay. about it. All right. <laughs> but one of the things that is interesting here is that the company that's developed this is a company called Elbit Systems. Now, in Australia, they're well known because they actually developed some flight training facilities and the Royal Flying Doctor Service was going to actually install those $18 million contract they were about to let out to install a flight training facility in one of the Royal Flying Doctor Service bases. But it got to the point where Elbit were better known for some of their weapons that they developed and in the end that all fell through with the RFDS and I think they used someone else for their flight training. So it's a company that's well known in Australia, but their main focus is developing weapons. And what they've done with this is they've really taken all the promise of augmented reality and put it into weapons. So you take this and add it to any normal gun, I'm going to say normal gun, normal sort of assault gun, an M4 or something like that, mm. and basically it turns that gun into something that's complete with AR. You wear a small headset that goes with it, so now instead of looking down the barrel to aim the gun, you're looking through your headset, and it gives you an incredible amount of information about where you're aiming that gun. So first of all, it tells you how far away your targets are, it tells you the wind speed and the wind direction, so you can make alterations as to where the gun might be pointed. Hold on. No, you don't do that because the gun will recommend where you might need to aim to take into account the wind speed and the wind direction. It'll tell you information even about the people that you might be shooting at. I'm talking about paintball here, of course, remember? <laughs> yeah, of course. So when you're, when you're aiming at these people, it tells you whether they're friend or foe. How it gets that information, I have no idea. But it will tell you friend or foe before you actually even pull the trigger on this. This sounds too much like something on an Xbox. <laughs> it does. It does. And that's what they've said. They've actually talked about this as being something Thing where they've tried to emulate a gaming scenario, oh, wow. which scares me a little bit because when I see my son playing games that involve shooting, I say, oh, I'm not sure if that's great. And he says, Dad, I know it's pretend. Look mm. at the characters. They're all pretend characters. I'm not going to go and buy a gun and start shooting up people because I know it's pretend. But then when they start making systems that emulate that... Welcome to modern warfare. Yeah. Yeah. And there you've hit the nail on the head, James. It is modern warfare. You take all this information, you feed it into a headset. Normally, and I've, I know this from the movies and they can't be wrong, someone stands behind a brick wall and they jump out from behind the brick wall and aim for the guy they're shooting at and take a couple of shots and then jump back behind the brick wall. Mm. With this, you would actually stick your gun around the wall and you would be safely behind the brick wall because your gun has got all the information being fed into your headset that you can then see. So you can actually shoot around corners. So backyard warfare is now on. Corners are okay. <laughs> corners are fair game. Oh, my goodness. My brother was a cheat. My brother, he was always a cheat. And he'd be cheating at this too, I'm sure. Then yeah. It gets further than this. All of these guns can communicate with each other. You can actually have all the people on your side, on your team in paintball, all communicating with each other. You can see how much ammunition each gun has got. You can actually check the, the whereabouts of those other people. So all this information is fed into this whole network. And when we see this promise of augmented reality, I mean, I would hope 
that we see better uses of augmented reality, but this is what we're talking about. We're taking the real world and we're combining it with all this other digital information that can be fed into whatever device we're using, carrying, wearing on our head, whatever it might be. So quite incredible technology. I wish it was used for something good, but quite incredible technology. Uh, very impressive. Um, but uh, like you know, we've already talked about it so far, that, that a lot of ideas come out of entertainment, come out of movies, come out of, well, now computer games. My heart goes out to the writers of James Bond movies who just, their jobs just keep getting harder and harder and harder because <laughs> they've got to think of the next outlandish piece of technology that they've got to come in and stay in front of, say, the US military <laughs> and, and their goals. Maybe those smartphone ideas that people need to get together with the James Bond people and come up with these outlandish ideas and then create smartphones from that. <laughs> Perhaps. Smartphones that work around corners, they already do that. Oh, anyway. I'm sure we've done stories recently on extending battery range in EVs, but it looks like there's a new model EV that's the first to crack 800 kilometres. Is that right? This is a big target. I'm not sure why it's this thing that gets stuck in people's head. I need my EV to go more than 800 kilometres because how often do I go more than 800 kilometres in one trip? never, but I really want it to go more than 800 kilometres. And, and a 1,000 kilometres just seems like way too far. It just seems ridiculous. Yeah, you moved to that fourth digit then, so that's just being silly, isn't it? So let's make 800 our target, and when they get to 800, that's when I'll buy my EV. <laughs> it seems to be one of those things that people have these excuses. But Lucid Air... We're there. Well, we're there now. Lucid Air has been ticking away for a while. We actually talked about Lucid Air a few weeks ago for some of the investment being put into Lucid Air. They raised another... Well, I think they've raised a total of $10 billion so far in investment funds, and that's okay because they've sold so far zero cars. Mm. But they're getting there, and they're about to release one of their models that will be for sale very shortly. And it is, it's exactly as you said, it, it's hit the magic 800-kilometre mark. The EPA in America has given it an official rating of 836 kilometres. Now, this is better than any car on the market, better than any Tesla in the market, for example. Tesla's up to about 650 kilometres, so to hit 836 is pretty exciting. And the Worldwide Harmonised Light Vehicle Test Procedure, better known as WLTP, which is almost as complicated as the name itself, that actually hasn't been given, or they haven't got a rating from that yet, but they normally have slightly higher rating values. So 836 with the EPA, it might be 850 or 860 with the WLTP. So this is really exciting in terms of that range because people still have that range anxiety. The issue with this one is going to be that it won't be a problem with range anxiety, but it will be a problem with sticker anxiety, I think, because this particular model that does the range has a ticket price at the moment in the US of $169,000. Convert that to Aussie dollars, we're probably talking pretty close to a quarter of a million dollars maybe. Uh. So that's a bit of an issue, but they've done that by putting a bigger battery in, obviously to get more range, but they also claim that their 113 kilowatt hour battery is not enough alone to get that range. They've got better motors, so they say, more efficient motors. That's how they get the range as well as the bigger battery. But it's the same old thing. As long as you're prepared to pay for it, you can get just about anything you want. A bigger battery, sure. Having to pay for it will give you that range if you want it. And then some people might say, hmm, do I really need that range or could I get by with maybe a 400-kilometer range? Is that a better option for me? Yeah, well, look, Sydney to Melbourne on a single charge is looking like less and less of a pipe dream. And, and I'm sure, yeah, again, the technology will get cheaper uh, in time. Uh, it's, uh, it's great to know that we've broken that little, well, we've, we've crossed that little uh, finish line, the, broken the tape there for 800 kilometres. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It'd just be nice to see them start to sell some cars too. Defence against COVID-19 and its present and future variants has stepped up a notch. 
Early detection is a key, but a new test is looking to check your level of immunity. Matt, this is a new angle at defending against disease. This is all about pre-infection testing. Well, it does make a lot of sense to me because if I had had COVID-19 and then someone said, now, you can go into some cafes, once you go and get your injection, once you get your vaccine, I might somewhat logically argue that I've already got some antibodies in my body because I've had the disease and I've gotten past it. But of course, the government would say, no, we need to see proof of your vaccination before you can be let out in the real world. This test then says, let's work out how good your body's defences are against COVID-19, whether that be by the fact that you've already had it or whether or not you've had the vaccine. We want to test the effectiveness of that vaccine. Which vaccine have you had? Do you need a booster? Is it time for you to actually analyse all of that? And that's a much smarter way. At the moment, it's just a We've given you two jabs, off you go. Go and sit in a group of people and have a picnic or go to a cafe. Mm. It's not too bad in terms of the science, but it's not precise. This science here, I think, will be much better. And the thing I like about it the most, James, you don't need the test equipment to go through the back of your brain via your nose to actually get (laughs) the information. It's just a finger prick to get some blood. No more gagging. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Yeah, Yeah, so it's, it's one of those things that I think it's a logical step forward. But by using that finger prick, it's actually taking the blood, testing your blood, for antibodies to COVID-19. Let's get straight to the heart of it. That's what we're all interested in, is having the antibodies build up. So when we do get exposed, which obviously, as we slowly open up the world, we'll all be exposed to COVID-19 somewhere, somehow. Mm. It's whether we've got enough antibodies in there to basically have that immediate defence against it as to how we survive. So it seems logical to me. It seems obvious to me. Why hasn't someone else thought of it before? And yeah, well, people have been talking about getting booster shots and whether or not we need to get booster shots or, you know, the fact that we have to get booster shots. Well, this is just showing us that perhaps you need to get a a booster shot. Well, it it may be a booster shot. It may not be a booster shot. It may be a different type of variant. All of those things can be basically brought forward with this information Mm. by testing our blood for those antibodies. Now, anyone out there that is a bit scared of needles, I'm sorry, there will be a finger prick involved in this one. Maybe they'd prefer to have something stuck up their nose through the back of their brain. Mm-hmm. So for some people that, that have got that issue there, that mightn't be great. But I still think this is a better way to go where we're testing what really needs to be tested and that's our body's immunity against any particular disease and this one in particular. And no microchipping or 5G or um, magnetic uh, side effects, I presume? I hope that's all part of it. I hope that that comes as, as free with this particular test. Okay, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I look forward to seeing more of that too. Now, I saw an article about this next story on the news this week. Um, It's both hilarious and thought-provoking. People are going to scoff, but potty training cows is all I'm going to say at this point, Matt. You take it away from here. (laughs) Gee, thanks, James. You're so generous to me. (laughs) The potty training of my kids was a challenge, James, getting them all to go to the toilet. And and, I mean, it's potty laziness. I I think my one boy took a lot longer than my girls because I reckon he was lazy and goes, I can just sit here and do this. I don't need to go anywhere. (laughs) (laughs) So cows have got that same issue as well. They've just got... Their whole paddock is their toilet. Mm. Why would they need to bother Mm. about being potty trained? But that's exactly what some scientists are working on at the moment. They've created a thing called a mooloo. And whether people can actually train cows to go to that mooloo was the first question that I had in my mind. 
but they can. They've actually <laughs> found the effectiveness of getting cows to go to this is about as effective as teaching a toddler. I, so that sounds... It, it blows me away that people thought of this, that it was it was an idea that they thought of, but it makes sense. It does make sense. And so the first part is training them, and they train them through some basic concepts, giving them some rewards, some food, or if they went to the toilet out in the outside of the mulu, they get a spray in the face with some water. I'm sure no cows were harmed during this experiment. <laughs> But why would we want them to go to a particular area? That's the crucial question here. What they've got is the mulu is effectively just some artificial grass. So it looks like normal grass to a cow, maybe, but they go to this on the artificial grass. And why we want that is that when a cow goes to the toilet on the ground, it actually reacts with the soil. So there's ammonia in, in the urine. And what that does is it creates nitrous oxide, which is obviously a greenhouse gas. Mm. If we can get the cows going on artificial areas and then not having it interact with the soil, we actually reduce the amount of nitrous oxide that we might produce. Cows are still going to produce methane, which we know is a bit of a problem already. They haven't come up with something to strap to them to catch those belchers or wind that might come out of the cow. That might be next down the path. But this is the first step to go. And if you look at nitrous oxide, for example, it's 300 times more potent than carbon dioxide. Mm. Now, again, not as much as produced, but it is certainly more potent to actually get there. Well, I'm, I'm just blown away. Well, we can also, if we can catch their um, their waste, then we can learn to do stuff with it. Now, we already know that cow pats are a great fertiliser. I mean, we've, we've got our other sources of fertiliser, but um, you could be using those things for other things as well. Like, uh, and, well, uh, we can treat, treat the urine and it actually can become usable water. Well, that's right. You could do all sorts of things with it, couldn't you? So the estimation is that if they could get 80% of cattle urine in a mulu, then that would cut emissions by 56% across the world. Mm. Now, that's a fairly big challenge. There's a lot of places around the world that are the cows, so to get 80% figure would be quite difficult. But the training side of it, they only found 10 days to get 75% of their cows trained to go and use the mulu. So it's got hope. It's got some sort of way forward. Maybe they get to the point where cows automatically just come in for their feed to this mulu, and there's not a lot of thought that goes into it. They just go, oh, that's where I go to get food, or that's where I go to drink. Therefore, I'll just automatically go there and then use something else with the, the feces and the urine. I'm just thinking about the queue at the cubicle um, as the only other thing there. <laughs> uh, the knocking on the door with the hooves. <laughs> Are you finished? Stop reading your smartphone. It's going to be a while, mate. <laughs> Well, all we need to do now is to uh, teach them how to politely fart into a bag, and we're on our way to a healthy worth completely, yeah? Now, the Hubble telescope was launched almost 30 years ago, it seems like yesterday, but it revealed a lot about the deep areas of space that we had no idea about. Well, NASA have decided it's time for a new model, and it's set to launch in December, Matt. Yeah, this is pretty exciting. We did actually talk about the Hubble not that long ago, because Mm. you may remember that one of the computers on the Hubble failed, and they had to switch over to a backup computer. And I did mention at the time that they probably didn't want to spend a lot of time and effort on trying to fix that, send people across and do a spacewalk across to it, whatever, because the James Webb was being launched. Well, the James Webb is being launched. It's on target still for the 18th of December, and... When we thought the Hubble was good, and it circulates about four or 500 kilometres above the Earth, so it's getting away from the atmosphere and getting some cleaner shots of space. Mm. When we thought that was good, when we go to the James Webb, we just go to the next extreme. So forget a few hundred kilometres, we're talking 1.6 million kilometres that the James Webb will be away from Earth. 
what they're talking about is that this is often dubbed within NASA as the first light machine because they're hoping that they will get to see right back to the Big Bang, the first light that existed in the universe. Wow. So that's pretty incredible. Now, obviously, the idea here is when we look up in the sky, we're seeing the past. We might see some twinkles there of a star that might be, I don't know, a million light years away, a few million light years away. But that's trying to fight its way through our atmosphere, and that obviously makes it pretty hard to do. But when we get 1.6 million kilometres away, we really are able to see so much deeper into space. So what we'll see will be incredible from that perspective. But also in 30 years, believe it or not, I know this is going to be hard to believe, but Technology's developed a bit in the last 30 years. So the <laughs> Go figure. So the telescope itself is so much better than the Hubble telescope. The technology in terms of the computer technology is better. The, even the, the mirror, like it's got a six-meter mirror in there. Even that is going to be a much more refined mirror than had the, on the Hubble telescope. So all of that is going to be better from the imagery and then put it way out in space. That's going to be fantastic. One of the challenges, though, was at 1.6 million kilometers – there's not a lot of heat around, and when there is heat around, it's coming and going a bit because you're not protected by any sort of vague atmosphere. So they basically had to build these incredible heat protectors and then make everything work at very cold temperatures. We're talking about minus 234 degrees Celsius. All the testing that was done then, they had to simulate an area with very little atmosphere and at minus 234 degrees to make sure all their equipment worked because if it's a bit of a pain to work on the Hubble, imagine 1.6 million kilometres away and they go, oh, damn, that little bit that's meant to open up now must be frozen shut. What are we going to do? Send the next one out there? (laughs) So that's a a tough one for them. But they've done all this testing in those incredibly cold environments. One of the reasons they also want it to be really cold – is that some of the information coming in is infrared. So it's more about the heat more than the light that's coming in or the visible light. Mm. And so to capture that, they don't want the device itself creating heat that might leave some sort of infrared signature that might somehow change the information that's coming in. So that's another part of it, staying so cold. But it does sound like the technology on there is incredible. The calibration process alone, James, when they get it up there in December, about 35 days to get the thing to cool down to the right temperature, and then about six months of calibration. So when we see NASA all excited when it launches in the middle of December, we won't see any images from this till sometime in the middle of next year. Well, I remember when those first images came out uh, of the deep field that the Hubble took. Um, That was pretty amazing. They'd, They'd angled the Hubble telescope to look at one of the darkest points in space that they could possibly find, and they just found this... These, this light that's coming out of it, all these points of light, these galaxies that they had no idea were even there. What is going to be discovered by the James Webb? Uh, yeah, who knows? It's going to be amazing. To take your point there, as you said, places in the sky that we thought were just black, you point a better telescope like the Hubble at them and suddenly, as you say, there's all these points of light. There's other places in the universe that I assume that even with Hubble, we think are black now. Mm. So take this up there, put it out at 1.6 million kilometres and then those places we thought were just black Maybe there'll be a whole bunch of other stars and galaxies and sorts of things that we have no idea about out there. It sounds incredible. The other thing that'll be really interesting about controlling this is at 1.6 million kilometres, with speed of light travelling at about 300,000 kilometres a second, then any control they send to this is going to take almost six seconds to actually reach there. So if they say, hey, we want to point it in this direction, well, 
point it in that direction, wait six seconds for it to get the extra information, then wait for some time for it to process it and send some information back. So remote control with that latency, that lag in there would be really interesting. Yeah, yeah it's, well, some some problems to uh, resolve uh, at that point there. But as you say, taking, uh, well, at least trying to chase that very first light from the Big Bang, um, yeah, that's going to be amazing. Looking forward to it. All right, folks. So we rule off another sterling episode of Tech Talk with Matt Dickerson. Well done, Matt. You've done it again. Collective minds of the general public, blown. This might be our last week in lockdown too, James. We might be able to be back in the flesh next week. Who knows? Fingers crossed. And thanks for tuning in again, folks. We'll be back again with more next week. I'm your host, James Eddy, and don't forget to like and subscribe. Subscribe.